Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all. We'd like to dismiss our first and second graders to go with our teachers downstairs for a wonderful class. It's good to worship with you all tonight. We are continuing in our sermon series. If you were here last week, uh, we started a new sermon series entitled The Story of God. And we're wanting to trace the singular thread that runs throughout the, the Bible, from Genesis all the way through to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. A lot of the time, it's easy to open the Bible and to kind of get lost where we are and to not know where we are in the storyline. And sometimes it's even hard to know what the storyline is. So we wanted to, as a church, take a, an eight-week series to just talk about what is the primary th thread that runs throughout the fabric of Scripture? What is that primary and central message and so tonight we're going to jump into the opening scene, the opening movement in this overall story, and it's a story about creation. The opening movement is about God's creative work. We are storied people. We often understand ourselves and our world through stories. And uh, beginnings of those stories matter. The origin of our stories really matter. As a nation right now, we've got different people who are arguing over the history of America and its founding. What actually happened at the founding of America? And part of the reason that people are arguing over that is because origins matter. Where we come from as a nation seems to be important for how we understand who we are now. To understand who we are now requires understanding where we've come from. And so origins matter. If you turn on a football game, especially if it's a particularly historic rivalry. Yes, I know something about sports. Some of you might be surprised. I actually did play sports as a kid and watched a lot of sports growing up. But uh, if you see a particular rivalry between two teams, it's not uncommon for there to be like a history of the rivalry that's aired before the game starts to remind people of the history of these teams. Uh, in my own life, there was an origin story that seemed really powerful and kept cropping up. I grew up in Jefferson City, Missouri, and I grew up in this kind of interesting context where my family lived on 40 acres that was right on the edge of town. We were annexed. We were part of Jefferson City proper. And there was, like, civilization close by. Less than a mile away was my elementary school. Brand new, very nice elementary school. They actually had indoor plumbing. So it's, uh, you know, modern. About two miles from my house was a mall with a food court. So we didn't live way out in the middle of nowhere. But somehow or another, I fixed in my mind, my origin story about who I was and where I came from, is that I'm a kid from the sticks. Because much of our time we spent on that 40 acres, hunting or fishing or farming. And if we weren't there, we'd drive like 10 minutes out of town to a farm that we rented. It's like 100 acres where we ran most of our cows. So we did spend a lot of our time out in the sticks. But even though I lived in town, next to the mall, next to my uh, public school, next to fairly big suburban development, I thought of myself as a kid from the sticks. And that story of my origins followed me in life. It shaped my understanding of myself. So much so, it, sometimes it even surprised me. I was in college. I was uh, a major in biblical studies, but also had a minor in music. And I had this conducting professor who was just as slick as the day is long, smooth, like Rico Suave, this is the definition of it. If you look it up in the, in the, in the uh, dictionary, Rico Suave is Tom Matrone. Uh, that was his name. He's from the East Coast, dressed really, really well, very confident, musically gifted and talented. So I'm in this conducting class with Tom Matrone, 
And I was always admiring Tom and like trying to conduct just the way that he conducted and do it just the way he did. And then it was my turn to get in front of the class and to conduct everybody. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this really well. I've been studying this, working on this. And so I start conducting with a standard pattern. And Tom comes up and he's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, what am I doing wrong? He's like, well, your hand isn't just right. And I'm like, what? Like, tell me, like, show me. And he's working with me for like three, four, five minutes to try and help me to get my hand positioned just right. And I just don't get it. I'm like, I'm trying, and I still don't get what I'm doing wrong. And I start getting embarrassed because everybody else is staring at me, getting this wrong. And I'm certainly embarrassed in front of Tom. And out of exasperation and frustration, out of somewhere deep inside of me, this origin story came out and said, what do you want from me? I'm just a kid from a farm. That origin story followed me into my life. Origin stories really matter. And not just for me personally, but especially when you think about who we are as people. The origin stories for humanity really matter. And we need to get that origin story right. And thankfully, we can turn to the scriptures and it helps us to understand where we have come from and why that matters. Lord, tonight we just want to thank you for such a sweet time that we've already had worshiping. And we just thank you for your presence among us. We thank you for your good work in us and through us. And Lord, tonight we especially want to thank you for the word of God. We want to thank you of the story of your creative work in this world and what you are accomplishing in this world. We pray that you would help us just to slow ourselves tonight, just to calm and still ourselves, to hear from your word and to understand who you have made us and who you are. We ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So as we start tonight, uh, I'd like to talk about Israel's neighbors and their origin stories. So before talking about Genesis 1 and what it has to say about origins, I want to talk about the fact that Israel had some neighbors and they had their own origin stories because it's important to see how Israel's story is different. So we'll look at one story. It comes from Babylon, which they actually borrowed it from somebody else. This is a story. Who's heard of the Enuma Elish? You all have taken religious studies classes here at Iowa. So awesome for you all. The Enuma Elish is a very well-known story out of Babylon, and it goes like this. There were these two gods. You have one called Apsu, and the other one is Tiamat, and they are associated with these waters, and everything's kind of chaotic. And all of a sudden, Apsu and Tiamat come together, and they make children. And these children are considered gods, lesser gods. And everything seems fine until Apsu gets really upset. The dad, the father of these gods, gets upset because the children are rowdy and they don't let him sleep or get any work done. This is the truest part of the Enuma Elish. <laughs> it's so true. Once you have children, like my wife and I have been married a long time, and we have, seven children, or have a seven-year-old, not seven children. <laughs> Surprise, honey. <laughs> we have a seven-year-old, and we have not talked in seven years. We had a conversation we started seven years ago, and we're hoping to get to that sometime in the next eight to nine, but kids really mess with you, and they mess with your sleep. Uh, Sydney, our, our one-year-old, has gotten into this terrible habit this last week where somewhere around two or three in the morning, she'll wake up, and it seems like she's going back down, but then she rallies, and what she started doing lately is she starts saying, Dada, Dada, and she starts bouncing, and I'm like, that would be really, really sweet and adorable after 6 a.m., or even after 5 a.m., but honey, it's two in the morning. Please, if you love us, go back to sleep. 
So these children keep Apsu up, and they disrupt his work, and he gets mad, and so he's going to do something about this and do something violent. His wife, Tiamat, she wants to warn her children, so she goes to her children and says, look, your dad's really angry, and he's going to do something. One of those children takes things far further, much further than Tiamat ever wanted, makes this plan to put Apsu to sleep and murders him in his sleep. Tiamat is angry about this. Her mate has just been murdered. And so while she was trying to save her children initially, now she's enraged at these children who have taken away her mate. And she wages war against these children. And this war ultimately uh, continues to escalate. Tiamat gathers all these forces, these beasts around her. And her children finally conquer her and defeat her as one, this rival god emerges as the head of the gods, Marduk, and he kills Tiamat and fillets her body in two. One part becomes the earth, one part becomes the sky. Out of her eyes flow the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. A little bit later on, the children kill another god, and the blood of this god is used to, in the mud, mixed into the mud, and makes humans, and humans become the slaves of the gods. This is a story that was common in Israel's day, prominent in Israel's day, about origins. Creation emerges with chaos. It starts with chaos. You've got the chaotic waters, and then you've got the chaos of these gods fighting each other. So it starts with chaos. Creation emerges out of violence between these gods, and humans are made to be slaves of the gods. This is so dysfunctional and crazy. It sounds like a family reunion in Missouri, and I can say that because I'm from Missouri. <laughs> but Israel's origin story is very, very different. Now, there are similarities between these two stories. I don't want to dis, uh, discredit that or uh, undermine that. That's, there are similarities between these two stories, but the differences really make a difference. So Genesis 1, verses 1 through 2, reads this way. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So verse 1 starts out and gives us a summary that God creates the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2 wants to talk about the rest of this process of creation. And so um, God is hovering over what is void, what is empty, and what is dark. It's really important to key into these words. God is over an earth that has no form. We've got to remember that. No form, that it's void, that means it's totally empty. There's nothing in it, and it's dark. Those are three things that God is going to work on through the rest of this chapter. He's going to work to bring light into the darkness. He's going to take what is formless and he's going to give it shape. And then he's going to take what is void and he's going to fill it with teeming and thriving life. So the first thing God does is he brings light into the dark. Genesis 1, 3 through 5 says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So God brings light into the darkness. But then he moves on to start bringing shape and form to that which had no form. So Genesis 1, 6 through 10 says, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. 
And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So there's two ways that God is separating here. He's separating these lower waters from the waters that are above to create the sky. This probably tells us that they're talking about an ancient cosmology here, which viewed there to be like these waters in the deeps, and then there are waters above, and something held those waters above at bay. And so God separates the water from the sky. He's bringing it to order. But he also separates the seas from the land. God is bringing to order what was, what was formless and had no shape. But then God starts filling the void with teeming and vibrant life. Genesis 1.11 says, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. So God had created, he had separated these regions where there's dry land, and now he's going to fill the dry land with vegetation. Eventually stuff like sweet corn that we love, apples from Wilson's Apple Orchard. Genesis 1, 14 through 15 says, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. So again, God creates this space, these skies, these heavens, but now he's filling them with heavenly lights. We were down at my parents just the last weekend and my parents live way out in the middle of nowhere now. <laughs> Since I grew up, they have actually moved way out into the sticks. There are no lights, and when you look up into the sky, you can see every star. It's amazing to look at the heavenly lights that God has cast into the skies. And then Genesis 1.20, God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God has separated again these regions, and he's filling them. He's filling the seas with sea creatures, blue whales, Amazing little seahorses. And he's putting birds into the skies. And then Genesis 1.24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. Lions. I'm not going to say tigers and bears. <laughs> oh, my. Amazing creatures. God brings life in full force. So thus far, what we've seen is that God's creation, in Genesis 1, God's creative work is not the chaotic and haphazard result of violence between gods. This is not warring and rival gods fighting each other. Instead, creation is orderly. It's purposeful. It's intentional. God sets out to create exactly what he does create. And creation is intentionally made to be good. Six times throughout Genesis 1, God says, it says that he looked at what he had made and he saw that it was what? Good. God aims to make what is good. This sets Genesis 1 apart from a Babylonian tale about origins. It's a very different picture of God and a very different picture of his work in the world. But then finally, we see God creating humanity. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image. Really want to focus on that, in our image, and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We really want to focus on this language of the image of God, that God has made humans in his image, and that matters. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Some of you know this because you're Bible nerds like me and you've done a lot of reading and listened to podcasts or partly because we talk about it a good deal here at church, but this is an important thing to really draw out of Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 already kind of tells us what it means to be made in the image of God. Verse 28 defines this a little bit. Those who are created in His image, God blesses them and then says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Part of what it means to be a bearer of God's image is to rule over the world. Now, we hear that, and we think, oh, that sounds like God is telling people to, like, manhandle the world and to be powerful and to kind of usurp power and be power-hungry. But God has already been subduing the chaos. Genesis 1, verse 2, God's created everything, but it's kind of chaotic, it's formless, it's void, it's dark, it's chaotic. And yet God rules over the chaos and brings it to order for the sake of goodness and thriving and flourishing. And God not only rules the chaos, then he fills all these areas. I about brought chaos to the front stage there. That's next week's sermon. I about forwarded our series in one week. The fall came early this time. It's a new translation that I'm heading up. So... uh, What happens here is this picture of God not only giving humans the the work of bringing chaos to order, but then filling the world with good things. God had already been filling the world with good things. And God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That doesn't just mean more and more people. That's kind of implied there for sure. But fill it with good things. In the ancient Near East, this is the stuff that's not in the text, but Israelites would have been familiar with this from their own cultural context. In their time, to to have the image of a god on somebody meant that there was this royal kind of kingly figure, a king over a region or area, who was thought to be the image or representative of the god of that nation or that region. And that king was supposed to rule on behalf of that god and then to be a representative on behalf of that God and bring that God's kind of rule to bear in that region. So the book of Genesis is using this language to say all humans are created in the image of the one God, and we have been created to bring his goodness into the world, to rule in the world in such a way that we continue to bring order to the world, goodness into the world, thriving and flourishing into the world. So much importance about the image of God here. So I'm going to talk about why this is significant. There are a host of reasons why this is significant. Because we are made in God's image, God has made us with dignity and worth. 
In the ancient Near East, usually it was just kings that were thought to be these royal representatives of their gods. But here it's humanity. Humans across the board are made in God's image. They have this royal kind of status. And it's both male and female. Both men and women together bear this image of God. It's a lofty status of dignity and worth. And that's why later in Genesis, there's a prohibition against murder because people bear the image of God. It's a marker of value and dignity and worth. But also, being made in the image of God is important because God has made us on purpose and for a purpose. It's not like the Babylonian origin story where humans are made out of violence and are made to be slaves of the gods. Humans are made on purpose to serve good purposes, to continue God's creative work in the world. I'm thankful for when God uses us to bring his creative good into the world. And it can come in a host of ways. There are folks in this congregation, I'm going to talk about Bo because I know Bo and he didn't know I was going to say this, but Bo makes amazing food and is creatively very good at that. He also plays piano really well, but that's part of being made in God's image, that we can creatively bring good things into the world. Mindy's grandpa was a baker in Western Maryland and was also a coal miner. And the few times that I got to meet him and go see him, we'd uh, show up and he's like, well, tomorrow morning we'll have cinnamon rolls. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And then I tried them for the first time and I'm like, are you from heaven? It's like, you are angelic. You're like Michael or Gabriel. You're one of the angels because these are divine. This man knew how to get up early in the morning and in a basic kind of kitchen, 1950s kitchen, could tell his hands had been about this many years and he knew what he was doing. Could take simple things like dough and yeast and water and turn them into amazing, amazing little bits of manna from heaven. That's because we're made in God's image. People in here who are studying to be engineers and make buildings work and function so that we can go into them and use them. Or people who are in the sciences and in medicine and who are doing medical research to figure out how to help bodies to heal. This is possible because God has made us in his image and has given us the task of being able to continue to bring chaos to order and bring God's creative goodness into the world. And I'm thankful that he has done that. God continues to bring his goodness into the world through broken image bearers like us. We're limited. We have our difficulties, but he continues to use us to bring goodness into the world. We were made on purpose and for purpose. And God, as image bearers, God makes us for fellowship with himself. So Genesis 1, scholars all agree that Genesis 1 is painting a picture of the world being a temple. And gods were thought to dwell inside of temples. So what Genesis 1 is telling us is that God is setting up the world as a temple so that he could move into this temple, dwell within this temple, and then he plants Adam and Eve right in the middle of it as a way of saying, I am going to live with my people. And Genesis 2 bears that out. Genesis 2 talks about God walking in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. God has made us for fellowship with him. As image bearers, God has also made us for fellowship, not just with him, but with one another. Genesis 1, the task of bearing God's image is given to both male and to female who do that together. And it's not just that they're co-workers, like, hey, nice to work in the office with you. Genesis 2 says that these people who are tasked with bringing God's goodness into the world, bearing his image in the world, are also to experience deep, 
unity, that the two will become one. God has made us for fellowship with one another. And this is deeply important. This deeply matters. Downstairs before service, uh, Sydney, our one-year-old, toddled up to me out of nowhere. And she goes, Dada, hug. Dada, hug. <laughs> Absolutely. There's always a time for, uh, for a hug. And when I wrapped her up in my arms, and she, those little bitty one-year-old arms reached around my ever-increasing torso, she gave me that squeeze. The feeling that comes over me at that moment is a feeling of deep, deep meaning. As my precious little daughter, who is also an image bearer, is embracing her dad, a fellow image bearer, and the moment, that rich moment of embracing one another is not simply this collocation of cells and blood and water embracing this collocation of cells and blood and water and having some kind of biochemically induced response. That embrace is meaningful because this is one person who's been made in God's image embracing another who has been made in God's image. It's deeply good that God has made us in his image. And ultimately, as we bear God's image in the world, as we bring his goodness into the world, as we represent him, it should bring worship to God. It should glorify God. Every piece of good that we bring into the world should be something for us to experience and enjoy, for those around us to experience and enjoy, but it should also speak glory to our creator God who has given us any capacity for this to begin with. Our lives are made on purpose to bring goodness into the world, but also made on purpose to glorify the one who has given us these capacities to begin with. And we're also made to have moments of experiencing worship as we see God's goodness come into the world through other people. It should cause us to overflow in praise of God's good, creative work. There are moments to praise in the craziest of moments. It's not just here as we sing. I remember my vocal teacher in college. He was the best worship leader I'd ever met. And it's because when he got off the stage, he never stopped worshiping. I remember he, he would go study the human anatomy. He would go down to the, the morgue and say, can I like inspect bodies and learn about the anatomy of bodies? I'm like, you're crazy, buddy. And he was. But he would learn about how the body worked, and then he would say, okay, I've measured the windpipe and seen how long it should be and how large around, and he starts putting, like, all these pipes together and funnels, and I'm like, you're nuts. Like, you should be locked up. But he goes, watch this. And he starts twirling a pipe, and he goes, that's, that's C. That's the note C. But if I change it and add this, now it's an E. And he says, so when you're singing, this is how you change your throat, and this is how you change your mouth. And he says, isn't it amazing how God has designed us? That out of this body, beautiful music can come as we learn how to use the instrument that God has given us. And he would just stop and praise God right there. It wasn't because he was in a worship service. He would say, look at the beauty of God's creative work and how it continues to bring even more beauty into the world when we understand how it works. We were made for worship, to worship God in the way that we live, but also to experience these moments of awe and majesty at God's work in his world. Israel's origin story in Genesis 1 leaps off of the page when you compare it to the Babylonian origin story. Very different. In Genesis 1, you have a God of order who is over the chaos and brings it to order and brings it to goodness and thriving and flourishing. He creates beauty in an intentional way and to make life to be a life that's just deeply good. And then he creates human with meaning. 
creates us on purpose with dignity for relationship with him and relationship with others and to worship him and to praise him. Part of the reason I share this story about the Babylonian origin story and creation stories because oftentimes people come and they might think, well, the Old Testament sometimes seems strange or maybe it seems a little, like some people will even use the word barbaric at times or it just seems far-fetched. I had a student, I'm actually teaching a class here at the university this fall and a student came up to me afterwards and he says, look, wouldn't you just have to say that the Old Testament is barbaric on a plain reading? And I said, well, who's plain reading? (laughs) What do you mean? Like, well, if you just read it, isn't it barbaric? Like, well, some parts of it are hard for us to understand now, but if you read it against its ancient Near Eastern counterparts, the Old Testament is actually taking really amazing leaps forward in terms of civility, in terms of compassion and mercy and fairness and justice. And this picture of creation is an example of that. Here is God, not killing people, not creating as a result of violence and warring with other gods and creating humans as slaves, but here's a God of order and beauty who creates, and Genesis 1 reads almost like an orchestral piece. It builds increasing order, increasing form and structure, and then thriving and flourishing emerges as it hits this crescendo. And finally, humans are made in God's image to continue to bring his goodness into the world. This is a very different picture. And it's one that inspires me deeply, inspires me to worship, inspires me to get up in the morning, inspires me to want to be about God's work. I want to say that Genesis 1 gives us hope amidst today's origin stories. So Genesis 1, I did want to say a quick word. There's been a lot of debate in the church, and not just grace, I'm talking about churches in America, about whether Genesis 1 should be read as like, is it referring to six literal 24-hour days, or is it referring to large spans of time? And I feel like a lot of our time has been spent arguing about that, and it's actually detracted from what Genesis says for certain. I think Genesis 1 is not necessarily trying to be dogmatic and definitive about the age of the universe. I don't think that the the Israelites were even like aware of our conversations and questions that we have these days. But what it is definitively saying and what your elders at Grace all agree on, though we might have different views about uh, Genesis 1 and the age of the earth. Most, I think, elders at Grace lean old or young earth. I tend to lean a little more old earth, but we are all agreed that Genesis 1 is saying God made the world, God made it with purpose, with intentionality, and that God put humans into the world to bear his image, and that deeply matters. In today's culture, there's a different origin story. Most of us today don't buy into the Enuma Elish. <laughs> We're not believing ancient Babylonian or Sumerian kind of stories about the, how the world came to be. But there's a new kind of story that we encounter a lot today usually assumes that, first of all, all that exists is matter. Matter is what matters. So what can be known about the world has to be known of this natural world, what you can see, what you can observe. And so often the, the assumption is all that can be known is what the sciences can tell us. If there's a question that the sciences cannot answer, then that question, the answer to that question is, well, we don't know, or there's, it's answered in the negative. Does God exist? Science can't tell us so God must not exist. There's not conclusive scientific evidence that God exists, so God does not exist. Is there ethical meaning to life? Science sometimes struggles to come up with an absolute foundation for ethics, so maybe there's nothing like truly ethical in life. There's no truly moral or right thing to do in life. 
Is there meaning in life? Well, science has a hard time gauging what that would be. But where science starts to run into these fundamental, basic questions that all of us face and we all want to have answers to, that's precisely where Genesis 1 speaks the loudest. Science is an amazing gift from God, and I thank God for the scientists in this room. I thank God for the scientists outside of this room. But science, as the only worldview, the only lens on life, struggles to answer our most fundamental and basic questions. Is there a God? Why do humans exist? Is it right and necessary to respect another person's human rights? Those fundamental questions, does life have any meaning? Science can struggle to answer those, but that's precisely where Genesis 1 pulls out a megaphone and says, in the beginning, in the beginning, God created purposefully and with order and has made this world to be a place where we experience meaning and richness and worship and relationship with God. That's where Genesis 1 pulls out the sound system, turns it up to 10 and says, there is meaning in this life because God exists. Today's origin stories are often atheistic, and they leave us with a picture of meaninglessness. Jerry Coyne used to teach at the University of Chicago. He was a professor of biology, and he wrote this, I believe it's on his website. The universe and life are pointless. Pointless in the sense that there is no externally imposed purpose or point in the universe. As atheists, this is something that is manifestly true to us. Jerry Coyne assumes that God was not involved in the origin of the universe. God was not there to be involved in that process, and therefore, life has no inherent meaning, no inherent purpose. It starts with chaos, and it leaves you with chaos. This view starts with chaos, life comes out of chance, and it leaves you with chaos. What's the purpose of life? whatever we make of it. Try our best to make meaning in life. And at some level, that might sound happy, like we're all in a playground, we all get to play, we get to get in the sand, and we get to create our own meaning. At some level, doesn't that sound kind of fun and freeing? You can make whatever meaning in life you want. But as I was talking to a student of mine, he's a good friend of mine, he said, you know what, I get that. But at the end of the day, if I'm on my deathbed and I have to look back and say, I created meaning for myself, but did it ultimately matter? If the answer is no, he says, that's really hard to swallow. If life was satisfying at some level but was not ultimately meaningful, I have a hard time with that. As Viktor Frankl argued in the second half of the 20th century, he survived the Holocaust, he said, modern culture is suffering from a crisis of meaning. We struggle to find meaning in life. He said, because of that, we're not thriving. A recent Psychology Today article, I quoted it, number of sermons ago, but it's worth quoting again, it's from last year, said that there is an alarming rise in depression and anxiety since 1999, and it points to a major crisis in our culture. To many Americans, they're anxious, they're depressed, and discontent because they lack a sense of meaning. This view of origins, this story about our origins that does not have a place for God leaves us in a place of meaninglessness and we don't thrive when we have no meaning. And as much as we try to create meaning, it can 
give us some joy, can give us a little bit of robust kind of energy for tackling the challenges of life, but it leaves us still wanting with that fundamental question, is there ultimately any meaning or did I just happen to enjoy life? We don't seem to thrive without meaning and it's difficult to find lasting and robust meaning in life apart from believing in God. But we seem to still be driven and impelled to look for meaning in places. Jerry Coyne himself, the biologist from the University of Chicago, had things that he found meaningful to defend, and he should have defended them, things like free speech and things like civil rights. But why do those things matter? Why defend those things if we're not made in God's image? If we're not made to respect others and to love others and care for others? I think today's crisis of meaning points to the truth of Genesis 1. We were made and designed to desire meaning, and it's only satisfied in God. The God who has made us and placed us in this world to experience beauty, to experience wonder, but also to, be, to live on purpose, to glorify God in the way that we live, and to bring his goodness into the world, and to share it with others. So tonight, as we conclude, I just want to say that there is a God who sits over the chaos. Genesis 1 gives us a picture of a God who sits over the chaos that we can trust, who's in control. The Enuma Elish, this Babylonian picture, God is part of the world. Gods are part of the world and are part of the chaos themselves. Genesis 1, God sits over it. Today's origin stories, life starts with chaos and it ends with chaos. And hopefully humans can like kind of harness it and maybe we can make life good, make life enjoyable, reduce people's suffering, maybe try and carve out some meager sense of meaning, but at the end, there's no ultimate meaning. Life ends with a, universal existence ends with a massive question mark. What was the point? Ends with chaos. But Genesis 1 gives us a God who is over the chaos and who brings it to order. It's such a beautiful picture being able to trust him but also to thank him that he has infused our lives with meaning, that we are made in his image to partner with him. Can you think of like, like the God of the universe has decided, you know what? You're going to have a role to play in my creative work in the world. Is that not exhilarating but also humbling to think about that? That God would say humans are going to be part of God's creative work as his image bearers in the world. So next week... We're going to talk about where the story goes from here. So for me, this is a compelling picture. Genesis 1 gets me excited because it talks about why life matters, why beauty matters. It comes from God. He's made it. It's good to enjoy it. It's why we should enjoy a cup of coffee and, like, actually relish it. That's okay. That's why our relationships matter, and we should value our relationship. And that's why it matters to reach out to those who are in need. All of those things are found in Genesis 1. Because God has created a world with order and beauty and goodness and made us to be, have a place in it. But we all know that our experience in this life is also broken. That we don't live on this mountaintop where all we experience is beauty and order and meaning and purpose. Or the presence of God. So much of our experience these days is experience of brokenness and pain and suffering. So next week we're going to talk about how that brokenness came into the world. Why there is this brokenness in the world. And we want to answer the question, what's God going to do about it? Does God do anything about it? And if so, what? 
What is it that God does? So come back as we continue to dive into God's story. But tonight I want to leave us with this picture of a God over the chaos who has made us in his image to experience meaning and purpose and fellowship and relationship with him and to be able to trust that he is over the chaos. We'll see in the future what he does to rule and reign over that chaos. Lord, tonight we just want to thank you for your goodness. Thank you for every single good gift that we enjoy in this life. Every embrace with a friend or a spouse or a family member is meaningful because you've made us in your image. Every moment that is worth relishing, every moment that causes us to respond in awe is a reflection of your wisdom and your power as our creator God. We praise you today for all of your good gifts. We thank you for the sunlight that pours through the autumn leaves and lights them up with the vibrant colors. Praise you for the goodness of food that fuels our bodies. It tastes so good and brings us around a table together where we can experience fellowship with each other. We thank you for fellowship with you. And we thank you for all the ways that as a good father, you have given these gifts to us. We praise you today. And Lord, we also ask that you would help us as we continue in the story of God to continue to see who you are, your majesty, your glory, your worth. And Lord, to see what you are up to in this world. We praise you and give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.